Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of me undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Chapter 11. Aboard the Hogwarts Express. There was a definite end of the holiday's gloom in the air when Harry awoke next morning. Heavy rain was still splattering against the window as he got dressed in jeans and a sweatshirt. They would change into their school robes on the Hogwarts Express. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Casper, just one announcement today. We got over 50 t-shirt designs submitted to our design contest. Wow. And we had a really tough time the other day coming up with our finalists. We had teachers send in their students' submissions. I mean, it was just like such a beautiful experience. But now is the time to go online, go to our website, click the big orange button, and then vote on your favorite t-shirt design. And this winning design will be turned into an actual t-shirt that you can buy and proudly wear. So choose one that you'd be excited to put onto your body or someone else's body. (laughs) So go to harrypottersacredtext.com and cast your vote. And thank you again to everybody who submitted a t-shirt. They are absolutely beautiful. 
And in addition to our announcement, we also want to say a huge thanks to the organizers at PodCon, all the other podcasters there, and all of the amazing listeners who showed up and came to our meetup. And we just had such an amazing time, and I'm ready to move to Seattle. I'm ready to live in a land where all we do is hang out with other podcasters and podcasting fans. It's a good place. It's just like full of nice, curious people. (laughs) Casper, tell me a story. Sure thing. I grew up with three younger sisters, and so our household was not only full of little children, but we also had boarders who lived on the top floor of our house, and we ran a bed and breakfast, so there was always a lot of people going in and out of the house, which made for joyful chaos. And with a lot of people moving around, things get moved around too, and you end up with a lot of mess. And so one of the things that my sisters and I did sometimes, and I can't remember if this was like created by my mother or if we made this up ourselves, we would suddenly shout at some point in the evening or during the afternoon, oh my God, the queen is coming. And suddenly we would all be like, the queen is coming. Everyone get ready for the queen. The queen is on her way. Also, it wasn't clear if this was the queen of England, queen of Holland, imaginary queen. The queen was on her way and the queen has standards. And so everything had to be tidied up. And so this usual chore of like, putting things away, sweeping. I don't know if we ever like varnished or polished, but my memory says that we did. And it was this amazing child rearing slash social technology that we would employ to get something that wasn't fun done in a fun way. And I I have talked to people about this, and I think so many families had a version of this, which is amazing. And Reading this chapter through the theme of play reminded me of how we can use games to get unpleasant things done, how we can kind of gamify things, but also the way in which when we play, a different set of rules governs our social interactions and that we can kind of step in and out of a game state and what that does to us. So I'm really interested in kind of digging into this theme of play and gamesmanship today with you, Vanessa. That is the cutest thing I've ever heard. The queen is coming. The queen. It was actually me. (laughs) I'm the queen and I was on my way. And what would happen is I would come and I would look through the window and I would see that it wasn't tidy to my standards. And so I never came. I knew you were older than me, but I didn't know you were that much older than me. (laughs) Yep. But I think you're exactly right that even just a little joke or joke to yourself about a mistake, it can make things magical. It really can. And something that used to happen very seriously, British people who lived on certain roads would own good china because sometimes the queen on her way from one estate to another would like have to use the privy or like need tea and just stop in. This sounds like a story Americans tell themselves. No, there's real documentation of Queen Victoria doing it. There weren't like bathrooms on the road. That makes total sense. Yeah. And she's like on a 12 hour journey. She's got to pee. And she's got to pee and she needs a cup of tea. (laughs) She sounds like me. (laughs) You know what else she would ask sometimes? What? (laughs) If people just by the roadside would do a 30 second recap. Do a 30 second recap of my life. Or off with your head. (laughs) How much do I love my husband, Albert? (laughs) Tell me in 30 seconds. (laughs) All right, Vanessa, here we go. Three, two, one. 
Stop. So everybody has to head off to the Hogwarts Express. Um, Mr. Diggory's face comes out in the fire. Arthur has to run off to work because something is happening. Something is afoot with that Mad-Eye Moody guy, and he's crazy. And Bill and Charlie take everybody to the Hogwarts Express, and they're like, oh, the big event. There's going to be a big event. And then they get onto the train, and um, Malfoy stops by, and Malfoy's like, I know what the big event is. And the rest of them are like, oh, we don't, whatever. And then the train pulls in, and they see Harry. So good, Vanessa. Thank you. Yeah, that was real impressive. Do you think that Queen Victoria would behead me for it? No, darling. You're wearing a lovely hat. I wouldn't want to spoil it. (laughs) My fascinator. Your fascinator. (laughs) Okay, my dear. Now it is your turn. Wonderful. I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. Okay, I'm resurrecting my theory that owls need to be looked at because here is another story of transition and owls are absolutely at the center. I'm going to take a moment to think of the poor, like, muggle taxi drivers who arrive at the borough and are like, oh, sure, there's three taxis because there's a lot of people. Oh, no, there's, like, weird-sized trunks and live owls that need to go into my car and it's not clean. And anyway, so pigwidgeons, like, flying around. I'm just, I really want to talk more about owls and no one ever lets me. What theme can we do where we just get to talk about owls? Can we do a theme of owls? I, that's not a theme. That's a thing. <laughs> we can do a theme of Wings. symbols. Symbols. What if we do a theme of signs? Wait, Vanessa, can we do an owl post episode about owls? Yes. So why don't we ask people, why doesn't everybody send in a one to two minute voicemail on their favorite owl thought. Yeah. I want theories. I want themes. I want patterns. I want new ideas. Like, when do owls show up? Why? How? Are we doing books one through seven or just one one through through four? One through seven. Any owl-related theme. Okay. Done. I'm so excited. But our theme this week is not owls. It's play, as your story beautifully illustrated. So, Casper, where do you see the theme of play in this chapter? One of the places where I saw this theme, and I have to say, Vanessa, in this chapter, you kind of have to work a little bit to find this theme of play. It didn't jump at me. It's not like glaring. But one place where I did see it was the way in which information is shared or not shared. Because we have this exciting something that's going to be happening at Hogwarts. We're learning a lot about Durmstrang and Bo Baton, right? We know that Triwizard Tournament is coming, but our beloved trio don't yet quite know. And Malfoy's kind of dangling his knowledge and showing off and making them feel stupid for not knowing. But when we look at the Weasley older brothers and parents, there's this kind of, ooh, it's going to be so exciting. Well, you'll find out soon. Like, it's building suspense. That's right, like the days before Christmas. Exactly. And we're in Advent right now, which is my favorite liturgical season, because it is a season of waiting. And it's this kind of exciting something that is coming, but we don't quite know what yet. But it's on its way, and we're going to find out soon. And so I, I was just thinking about the way in which information is shared. Is itself a sort of game? Yes. What's so interesting is that for Malfoy, his father giving him this news is about power. Yes. Malfoy is like, your father must not be as high up in the ministry as we thought he was. And it's like very much about exploiting power. Whereas I feel pretty strongly that the Weasleys aren't telling the kids because they want them to enjoy the like opening feast where this news gets revealed. So for the Weasleys with their good intentions, this withholding of information or sharing of information is about joy and play, whereas for the Malfoys, like everything, it's about power. Same pieces of information can be shared for such different reasons or withheld for such different reasons. My mom did this, actually speaking about Christmas, 
my older brother and I were two of the only Jewish kids in our town. And if you have a little kid who loves Santa Claus, maybe skip the next 15 seconds, 30 seconds of this episode. But my mom just did such a good, playful job of explaining to us that we, because we were Jewish, were special and we got to know that Santa wasn't real. But it was part of our jobs to make sure that all of the kids at school got to still believe in Santa. And she made it this like playful game for us that it was like an honor that we got to know and that it was our responsibility to protect it for other people. I love that you point to this idea of playful and believing that the whole idea of a game is that you create a different reality. And the more that you're able to commit to that different set of rules, like you're not allowed to touch the cracks on the pavement or if you're it, you're going to be like lava. I don't know. But there's something, the more we allow ourselves to fully believe that different reality, the more fun the whole game is. So I love that your mom did that. Oh, yeah. She was brilliant, right? Because otherwise it could have been a secret or a burden. Or a superiority thing. Or an inferiority thing that like everybody else gets to have this thing. But by letting us be in on it, yeah, it made it into a game for us too. I also saw play as a way to process negative feelings or anger. So there's a lot of talk about, like, too bad we can't kill Malfoy, right? There's a lot of very violent conversation. Right, the whole, like, Durmstrang push him off an ice cliff thing. Right. The boys actually get the opportunity to kill Malfoy. They certainly, in Book 7, get the opportunity to let him die in the Room of Requirement. And they very intentionally go back and save him. So we know when given the opportunity to allow Malfoy to die, they don't let Malfoy die. So this language of I could kill him is in itself a form of play because there's also like play acting. It's not just play as in playful. It's also sort of play as in pretend. And so I'm wondering if saying things like I could kill you is like releasing a little bit of pressure out of a valve and it's just enough to keep you from like behaving really badly. Being able to play the role of anger keeps you from being truly angry and truly resentful and making decisions that you will regret. So I wonder if all of this talk over all of the years of saying I could kill you, I could kill you, is why they are able later to save him. Oh, that's interesting. I feel like in two minds about it, because on the one hand, I definitely agree with you. It it is like a pressure valve. But on the other hand, I also kind of feel like it touches on this question of violence in video games, that the more we expose, especially children, to violence and opportunities to act out violence without really consequence, that that becomes a way of being in the world But I'm also not really convinced by that point. Do you know what I mean? I I feel like we're somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I think it depends on how it's done. Mm. So having done karate for a lot of years, the way that I was taught karate was that karate means open hands. Mm. And that the idea of that is that you only need your hands in order to deliver cake, to, (laughs) to create harm, but that you go through the world with open hands, that you assume peace. You're being taught control as much as you're being taught how to harm and you're very much taught how to defend before harm. And so I agree that a lot of this has to be done with a great deal of intention. But I still think it would just be like having couples therapy, right? It's like by having a separate space with a container where you create a space to talk about all of these little things that frustrate you, the hope is that then 
these things won't explode into big fights later. I mean, I do that for myself. My catharsis very much comes from singing along to musicals. And I can't do that in my apartment because I live with students and they would hear me and mock me. But when I'm on a car ride, no matter what emotional state I'm in, like I'm just driving to grocery stores, the first thing I do is put on a song from a musical and belt it out. And for me, it's just like an emotional catharsis for emotions that I don't necessarily even know that I'm feeling. And then I get to like walk around the rest of my life not screaming and crying. But I really do think that it's because I get to like play at being a witch who's being held back because I have green skin. And like that helps me get through the world. I love that idea that there are actually games and states of play that we have just with ourselves. I think we see that in this chapter with Arthur and his collection of plugs. Clearly, he has a frustrating day at the ministry and he's like, let me rewire some plugs. That is going to take all my stress off. And I think actually that what you just described about singing in the car illustrates one of the rules that we need in order to play well, which is a clear kind of boundary of where the rules are and have some sense of control over the game. Because you can also have a sort of hunger game scenario where the game is being played at you and you are having to respond in ways that don't feel fair. You know, my sisters would always complain that when we played board games, I would change the rules halfway through the game. Now they don't play with me anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I've I've had to learn that like actually cheating doesn't make it fun in the long run because then the stability of the rules no longer apply. And so I feel like Arthur having some control over his plug collection and the fun of growing the plug collection. And for you in the car, like you get to set the container, you get to choose which song you listen to. That's all part of what makes play work. I mean, it creates an uglier kind of play when you cheat and change the rules. And Malfoy gets to just have like a more base kind of fun, right? He gets to sit at the opening dinner later tonight And he gets to feel smug as his form of play and as his form of fun, where everybody else gets this communal awe and excitement. And that's such a more generative type of fun because it's more communal, whereas Malfoy's fun only works because he's one of the only ones in on it. And so I think that he's going to have fun. It's playful for him that he knows something that everybody else doesn't, but it's not a generative type of of play that he's engaged in. Something that Stephanie Paulsell always says is that a sacred text is sacred, that it's worthy if it's generative, if it can generate conversation, if it can generate other pieces of text. And I think that we see that that Malfoy's play is sort of a profane play rather than a sacred play because it doesn't generate anything good. It doesn't generate anything new. I love that. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Casper, my darling, where else did you see this theme of play? Well, if you look at the very first paragraph of this chapter... I mean, literally the very first sentence, it says there was a definite end of the holiday's gloom in the air when Harry awoke next morning. And I wanted to interrogate that end of holiday's gloom phrase, because in my experience, yes, the end of the holidays marks an end to relaxation, to joyful adventure, to play, right? Lots of games or fort building or whatever it is. But in my experience, I love the end of the holidays because I am buying those new pencils. I am like making my learning plan. I can't wait for the beginning of the school year. And so I feel like for me, I want a balance of work and play. And of course, you can have playful work and workful play. But there's a sense that this is like a meal. You don't want to just eat chocolate ice cream all the time. The fact that you eat broccoli makes chocolate ice cream all the more delicious and varied. And so I'm surprised that the text tells us that there's this end of holidays gloom when actually in my experience, the end of play and the beginning of work can be a really joyful thing. Yeah, I mean, I think a few things. One is that there was this weird trauma thing that happened. The Quidditch World Cup wasn't fun in the way it was supposed to be. Absolutely. And so I think that there might be more excitement if the Quid- if they came back and they were just still chattering about the Quidditch World Cup and now they get to go to school and see all their friends who were weren't there and like catch up with them. I think that I'm surprised by it, too, because they love Hogwarts so much. Right. But I do remember when, as I have talked about on the podcast before, I hated middle school, hated middle school. And I used to just fight, fight, fight to get through the week. And Friday afternoon was this time of celebration. And I would start crying on Saturday mornings because I knew that Monday was just going to come. And there's a real thing called the Sunday blues where like people get sad on Sundays because they have to go back to work. And I have had friends who have that 
feeling even though they like their jobs. I don't think that that's tied to disliking your job. I think that there's something about being sad at transitions, which we've talked about before, just because it means time is passing and things are coming to an end. And maybe this is the last time that like all the Weasley kids will be under one roof, at least without spouses there. And so I think it's important to also be sad at the end of times of play. I think that it usually means, to your point, that there's something really exciting happening. They're about to get on the Hogwarts Express. They're about to go back to school. The Triwizard Tournament is going to happen. But even the Triwizard Tournament, it means that Quidditch isn't happening this year. All of these things have compromises to them. And I don't know. I think little moments of sadness are important because they're grieving something beautiful that's ending. Yeah, that makes sense. Another place that I saw play, Casper, was, you know, we've been talking a lot about the twins in the last couple of weeks, and I don't think we're going to spend as much time with them once we get to Hogwarts. But there's this very sweet moment where there's been a kerfuffle with Mad-Eye Moody. So Arthur has to go into the ministry, and someone says, oh, did I hear Mad-Eye Moody? And Molly says, your father thinks very highly of Mad-Eye Moody. And Fred says, yeah, well, dad collects plugs, (laughs) like teasing their father. And then later, Fred also says, and Dumbledore isn't exactly normal either. And so I just think it's interesting. It's like playful, loving teasing, right? Fred and George are not totally disrespecting their parents. They are not in any way totally disrespecting Dumbledore. Right. But we will see them try to cross the age line, you know, a playful disrespect of Dumbledore. And we see them teasing Arthur. And I think that teenagers can often be rebelling against authorities, sometimes in pretty disrespectful ways. And Fred and George, I think, are really positioning themselves as saying, like, my values are not the same as your values. Mm. I don't care about academics. I don't care about working for the ministry. I care about making money and I care about joking around. And those are not the values that I'm being raised with at all. But they are showing that mostly through play, which I think makes the larger rebellions more tolerable, that they're not screaming at Molly, I don't care about the things that you care about. What you care about is stupid and you never had enough money for us and I'm going to have enough money for my family. Instead, they're joking around on the explicit level and then on the hidden level are like doing these deeply rebellious acts. Oh, that's so interesting. And I love that idea of using play as rebellion in a way. It makes me think of different strategies that activists use to culture jam. So whether it's changing billboards or whether it's doing public performances, you know, a funeral for an oil company or the ways in which clowns will de-escalate violence between protesters and police often by joking around. There's really interesting ways that play can be used to kind of subvert traditional expectations of relationship or authority. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that they maintain the relationship in the way that you say as well. I don't think they're starting this company because they're like, oh, mom and dad, you never had any money. We want to have money. I I think it's just the life of OWLs and head boyship is just not their vocational call. What they want to do is bring joy and silliness into the world. And they are amazing at it. But they're not turning it into a tirade against their parents. They're still doing it. And they're doing it playfully. And that that makes it easier to forgive. I think you're absolutely right. 
And I think that this is a gift that you bring. Several months ago when the Muslim ban happened and yours and Sean's reaction was, let's all watch Sound of Music <laughs> and use that as an opportunity to like raise money and talk about things that matter. But we did it through joy and community, right? Like there's time where play has no place, but... Like a funeral. Actually, you know, I was just at a funeral and there were just two little kids at the funeral and it was snowing. The funeral is outdoors and kids were just like kicking the snow off of logs. They weren't being disrespectful. They're four and six and they're at a funeral. So they weren't like running around playing tag or anything, but they were engaging with nature in a playful way. And I think it Whenever you sort of needed a distraction from how sad it was, you would just look at the kid and smile. And it was nice to have these little little moments of play at a funeral. So I do think that play is important in most spaces. I mean, that's why we have gallows humor. I remember the morning, as I've talked about, my father has had a brain tumor since I was seven years old. And the first time he was having brain surgery, my parents decided not to tell us, which was a parenting decision. And they had to be up at like four in the morning to get to the hospital for the surgery. And for whatever reason, I guess on some level I knew something was wrong or I heard them, but I got up and they were getting ready in the bathroom. And I remember my mom was crying but laughing and my dad was cracking jokes. The two of them were just laughing and laughing and laughing. And I was like, what's going on? Why is mom crying? And my dad was able to sell me on. He was like, she's just crying because she's laughing so hard, which made my mom laugh. And I was like, oh, okay. And I have no recollection of what they were saying to each other. But, you know, my dad was about to go in for brain surgery and they were just cracking up the entire time. You know, there's a whole theology of play idea, which is kind of countercultural to so much of our life, I would say, especially in the US, where everything is about your purpose and you've got to find your call and, you know, go do purposeful work in the world. And there's this wonderful book by Jürgen Moltmann called The Theology of Play. And the whole idea is that rather than living in a world of kind of necessity and outcome, that we move to a place of freedom and spontaneity, where we see life not as a kind of teleological journey with one distinct endpoint, but this just delightful, creative space of just complete freedom. And the liberation that we would experience with that kind of constant state of play. And I'm just amazed by your parents at how they could navigate both a tender private situation, but also then with children where you're super conscious of their experience and being able to live in this frightening and stressful place with such levity. That's amazing. Vanessa, it's time for our spiritual practice, and we are doing Sacred Imagination, which I'm so excited about. So just a reminder to all our listeners that you can close your eyes as Vanessa reads the passage and try to think about the different sensations, smell, taste, touch, really kind of focus on where you are and who you are in the passage. I really encourage you, if you can, just take a 30-second little break and listen to this piece of the text. So the train is chug-chug-chugging along. You're moving a little bit. It's raining outside, but warm inside. Mm -hmm. And you are part of this conversation. So he thinks Durmstrang would have suited him, does he? She said angrily. I wish he had gone. Then we wouldn't have to put up with him. Durmstrang's another wizarding school, said Harry. 
Yes, said Hermione sniffily, and it's got a horrible reputation according to an appraisal of magical education in Europe. It puts a lot of emphasis on the dark arts. I think I've heard of it, said Ron vaguely. Where is it? What country? Well, nobody knows, do they, said Hermione, raising her eyebrows. Er, why not, said Harry. There's traditionally been a lot of rivalry between all the magic schools. Durmstrang and Beaubaton like to conceal their whereabouts so nobody can steal their secrets, said Hermione matter-of-factly. Come off it, said Ron, starting to laugh. Durmstrang's got to be about the same size as Hogwarts. How are you going to hide that great big castle? But Hogwarts is hidden, said Hermione in surprise. Everyone knows that. Well, everyone who's read Hogwarts a history, anyway. Just you, then, said Ron. So go on. How do you hide a place like Hogwarts? It's bewitched, said Hermione. If a muggle looks at it, all they'll see is a moldering old ruin with a sign over the entrance saying, Danger, do not enter, unsafe. So Durmstrang will look like just another ruin to an outsider, too? Maybe, said Hermione, shrugging. Or it might have muggle-repelling charms on it, like the World Cup Stadium. And to keep foreign wizards from finding it, they'll have made it unplottable. So, Casper, what did you think of as you were sitting, jiggling in the cozy Hogwarts Express? It was very cozy. I imagined myself to be Hermione, and I just felt like I knew everything. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) Like, she has such well-documented knowledge. I felt so secure in my understanding of the world around me. I always feel like people who really understand science in a deep way must walk around the world by being like, oh, look, it's that kind of cloud, which means it's this kind of atmospheric pressure. Or, oh, isn't that interesting? This kind of plant grows here, which means something about the acidity of the soil. I just don't know those things. And I I liked being someone who knew exactly how certain charms would obscure enormous buildings. And she says she doesn't know what Darmstrong is. You know she has a good idea. Yeah, she's a theory. It's so funny that that was your experience. I had the exact opposite experience. <laughs> I was hairy. And so I just felt so naive. I was like, of course Hogwarts is hidden. I never thought of that. And I'm never going to understand the wizarding world. Mm. And I'm never going to know the politics of this. I didn't even know there were other schools until like five minutes ago. And there are other schools and they're fighting with each other. And just those moments where you're like, I'm never going to catch up. And I don't want to be like Hermione who reads all the time. And so... The world is so big and it's like when you're in elementary school and you find out that it's possible that your teachers don't like each other, (gasps) right? Or that they're dating each other. Yeah. It's like, wait, what? There's a whole level of relationship (laughs) and politics that I didn't even know existed. Yeah. And I didn't even know that I didn't know. And like, what else do I not know? That's a really interesting thing that this passage might help us understand better. You know, there's that traditional idea that there's things that you know, and there's things that you don't know. And there's things that you know you don't know, like me and the acidity of the soil but then there's this whole category of things that you don't know that you don't know yeah and that's what harry is confronting right now yeah and how small that can make you feel or how big it can make the world seem in an like exciting way it can be exciting i think that there have been moments where it's been really exciting to me but 
often for me, it's been depressing because you're finding out about some of the ugliness of the world, mm. right? You're finding out that, like, schools are political and fight with each other. And it's like, I thought you guys were just here to teach me. Mm. Like, there's politics going on? Like, I I thought that this was just, like, about me, right? And he's finding out that Hogwarts is more than just a school for him, just a home. It's also this, like, political force that needs to be hidden. The other thing that struck me listening to you, Vanessa, was the way in which Durmstrang teaches the dark arts. And Hogwarts only has defense against the dark arts. But Voldemort's Death Eaters, at least from what we know about them, all went to Hogwarts. And maybe it's the UK-based Death Eater clan are all Hogwarts trained, and there's a whole bunch of other Death Eaters elsewhere. But it might also be something about... Hogwarts' fear of engaging or looking directly at evil that actually makes evil more enticing and interesting. Because evil at Hogwarts falls into that category of you know you don't know. And at Durmstrang, it's something that people have to learn, right? They learn the Cruciatus Curse. So there's something in that that if we just tantalize, it's like bad sex ed. It only makes things worse. I love that idea that at Durmstrang, it's possible that what they're teaching is like actual sex ed. And at Hogwarts, they're sort of learning the abstinence method. And Dumbledore's army is almost like a Durmstrang type thing. I mean, they're learning defense things, but they're talking about the real issues and what it's really like to be in battle. Absolutely. Well, I think we see that even more when Professor Umbridge comes and just has them reading from books. That to me seems like the really old fashioned, like, wait until marriage. You know, you don't really need to know anything. Yeah, maybe Durmstrang is like the really progressive, here are all the risks, here are all the great things about sex. And Hogwarts is like somewhere in the middle on the most part and isn't quite doing it right. That metaphor is really helpful. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Sarah Ibar. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name is Sarah Ibar, and I'm a listener from just a little north of you guys in New Hampshire. I love your podcast, and I love what you have helped me learn about myself and my place in the world. So thank you for all that you do. So I was reading the chapter Mayhem at the Ministry, and on the first page, I started crying, which in all the times I've read these books has never happened before. And here's why. In the fall of 2015, I was a senior in college studying abroad in Barcelona. One weekend, my friends and I traveled to Paris. We arrived on Friday, settled into the hotel, and got ready to go to a football match we had bought tickets to. I called my parents before we left, telling them how excited I was to go to the match. Of course, this was the night of the terror attack on the Stade de France and the Bastille. There was no cell service at the stadium, and none of my friends or I spoke French. We heard the blasts and just thought they might be celebratory cannons like during an American football game, albeit oddly timed. We didn't realize anything was wrong until we left the stadium and the streets were full of armored trucks and military officials with machine guns. We quickly headed for our hotel around the corner from the Bastille. My sense of urgency was peaked and I knew I had to call my parents. I wasn't sure if they would have heard the news because at that point, I only knew that something was seriously wrong. Once we were safe, I called my parents, and the sound that came out of my mother when she picked up the phone, the way she said my name. So, when I read this chapter and read Molly's reaction to seeing her family safe after a terror attack on a sporting event, all I could hear was my mother's voice on the phone. Like Harry, I didn't fully understand the severity of the situation I was in. Like Harry, I ran for safety in the middle of chaos. And I wonder if none of the Hogwarts-aged kids understood how truly terrifying the events of the World Cup were until they saw their mother cry for them. I know I have a rather strained relationship with my mother at the best of times, and hearing my mother's voice on the phone was probably the first time I ever got a real sense of just how much she loves me. Particularly, it reminded me of Fred and George, and if they felt this way after seeing Molly when they got home. So I want to give my own blessing for Molly Weasley, for my mother, and for all mothers who worry for their children and who have had to endure this kind of fear for their children's lives when terrible, evil things happen in the world. Thanks, guys. Sarah, thank you so much. It's an incredible story and a really beautiful and powerful reflection. I think what's especially poignant is that this time that you read that chapter, you had this very different experience because you had brought your own text of your life onto the text of Harry Potter and that that mirrored something new, which you've generously shared with us today. Thank you, Sarah. Vanessa, it's time for us to give a blessing to someone in the pages of this chapter. Who are you blessing this week? I'm going to bless Molly Weasley for calling those cabs and dealing with the cab drivers. I feel like international travel can be scary. You just don't know the customs and cultures 
of people who you're dealing with. And I feel like this is probably really stressful for her. She has all these kids who she has to get off to school and all these animals. And then in addition, she has to sort of be the one in charge. But she also has to be dealing with taxi drivers in a way that she really cannot understand what's going (laughs) on. I just think that that must be really stressful and that even in the face of all of that, she's still loving. She's still detail-oriented. She just really keeps her act together in this moment. And so I want to offer a blessing to everyone who sort of does minor brave things just because you got to do what you got to do. And if it requires taking a risk, then that's what you have to do. What about you, Casper? My blessing is for Ron Weasley. There's a moment in this chapter where Draco is being a real, you know, Draco. And Ron says, eat dung, Malfoy. And whenever I've read the books, I always feel like this is a way in which the author is able to avoid using swear words. But this time I read it differently. Sacredly? Sacredly, yeah. Because I suddenly realized that so much of how we use language shapes who we are. And there's this lovely quote which I wish I could pay more attention to, which is, watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. Watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. And I feel like Ron is like a couple steps ahead of me because he's already watching his words. He is mean-spirited, but he's trying to restrain himself from the intensity of what he actually wants to say. So I guess this is for anyone who's intentionally trying to be careful with what words they're using, with whom, at what time. I think we can all do a better job of being respectful, even when we're really angry. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. Please send us a voicemail of one or two minutes in length. We really would love to hear your theories about owls. Next week, we'll be doing an owl post with Maria Banji. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week's voicemail was thanks to Sarah Ibar. Our social media manager is Hashi Hetigay. Thanks also to Charlie and Rebecca Ledley, and of course to Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. can still be with the wizard. I can. I defy gravity. And waited for. You can have what you want. dreamed of. I don't want it. I can't want it anymore.